Scripture reading for our text is going to come from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. If you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to turn there and follow along with us. If not, just hear it being read or follow along on the screen. We're going to read verses 16 and 17. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would oversee the heralding of your word. Lord, there is no doubt that there is great flaw and great sin in the herald himself. Would you please, despite that, make use of him like a bugle, that your sound would come through without any uncertainty whatsoever and come to the hearts of your saints who have been working been communing, been driving, been attending, been participating in all different kinds of things throughout the week, Lord. And now we come and we sit and we gather around open Bibles and we ask that you would instruct us or that you would instruct us, but not to just fill our minds with truth, though they are desperately in need of that. That you would go beyond filling our minds with truth, but you would fill our hearts with that truth, that it wouldn't be something that we just know it will be something that we feel, it will be something that we love. And Lord, that the truth would not stop there, but that it would go from our minds to our hearts and to our hands, that we would live differently, first personally, then in our families, then in our church, then in our communities, our jobs, in front of the lost and all the ways that you place us with them. Lord God, we ask that you would use this text to make us more like Christ. We know that we have been predestined to be conformed into his image, and we know that that conforming is a process used today for great progress in each of us in sanctification and growing like Christ. And if there be any among us today that have yet to know Christ in a saving way, that today would be the day of their great salvation. We know that you do that. We know that you do convert people on the spot. You did so with Paul the great author of our text today. Lord, we ask all of this humbly and yet expectantly before your very throne of grace where we come as your children. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Part of what I wanted to do today as we continue walking through Ephesians 6 is pause and to understand the marvelous wonders of the word of God. Now, the word of God doesn't have multiple meanings. It doesn't mean one thing for one person and then one thing in one certain amount of time and different things like that. But the word of God does indeed have infinite depth. And there's a difference between having multiple meanings and infinite depth. What we're never doing is looking for a new spin or a fresh take on scripture, though that gets advertised a lot. We're never doing that. Because Jude 3 says that the faith, meaning the collection that all of Christianity is, which is the word of God, the faith was once for all delivered to the saints. 
It is what it is, once for all delivered to the saints. However, the deeper you dig into the scriptures, it's like a mine. It's like a gold mine. And the deeper you dig, the brighter and more copious the gold becomes. It's as if when you plummet further into cavern after cavern, they just get bigger and brighter and more covered wall to wall with the gold of the word. Some of you know what I'm talking about when you've experienced like a moment like that, a moment of greater insight into the scripture where that happens to you, whether it was through a preacher or a teacher or you and the scriptures, the Holy Spirit enlightening you as you study the word, that you maybe you've had one of those moments where you realize you're coming across in your reading plan and you get to Psalm 22 and you realize that whole thing is about Jesus on the cross. And it just, it's just so clear to you in that moment that it happens right then. Or maybe another time where you find the sovereignty of God somewhere besides Romans 9 and John 6 and Ephesians 1, and you see it somewhere else and you're blown away by that. such an accelerating grace that God gives to us. And many times the familiar passages are the most difficult to continue mining into. They're the most difficult. But like an old friend, they can still surprise you. You ever had an old friend and they say something like, "You wait, what? You did that? You've been there? You know them? And you, you've known them for years, but they continue to surprise you. The scriptures can do that for us. And we know that familiarity sometimes does indeed breed contempt. And Ephesians 6, 10 through 17 is a passage like that for many of us where we, we've heard this so many times or we think we've heard it so many times or we've just seen it used so many times in different ways. There's been so much glib preaching and gimmicky marketing around these passages that it's sometimes hard to shave off that veneer and get down to the majesty. But what we're going to do today is that. What I want to do is just give one example of how we can do that before we get into the fullness of these last three pieces of the armor. It's just like we're going to get into an old house and we're going to just pull back yards and yards of neon orange 1970s shag carpet and find out that there's Brazilian walnut hardwood underneath. So one example of how we can do this with our text, the defensive pieces of the armor. You look at the defensive pieces of God's armor that he's laid out in this handful of verses as elements of true conversion. Let me just walk you through this very briefly. The belt is the belt of truth in verse 14. And you have to hear the truth in order to be saved. John 8, 32 says, and you will know the truth and the truth will do something to you. It will make you free, free from sin, free from death. Secondly, the breastplate, which is righteousness. So upon believing the truth of the gospel, then now you are robed in the righteousness of Christ. That comes from Isaiah 61, 10, and I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in God for he hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And then thirdly, with the shoes, after believing the truth of the gospel, being robed in the righteousness of Christ, you now have peace with God and the shoes are the peace of the gospel. In verse 15 in Ephesians 6, which we already looked at in Romans 5, 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we hear the truth, then we're robed in righteousness. Now we have peace with God. Then the shield, one of the elements we're gonna get to today. So lest you get through those three elements and then you begin to boast 
that you now wear the robe of Christ's righteousness or the breastplate, that you have the peace with God on your feet and the belt of truth wrapped around you think that you did it. Well, the shield of faith lets you know that you didn't do it, that it was in fact given to you. Because Philippians 1.29 says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer. So belief in him, faith in him is a gift granted. And then the fifth piece is the helmet of salvation. Thus you are saved. Everything, all of those pieces of armor piling up underneath the helmet of salvation, that's the lid on top. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that helmet that brings that power. And how did this come to be your status? If we're gonna keep with this military soldier warfare imagery, how did this come to be your status? How did you get outfitted with this armor, all these elements of true conversion? How did that happen to you? Well, it means somebody came up to you at some point and hit you with the sword of the spirit. Somebody somewhere struck you with the sword of the spirit because Romans 10, 17 says, so faith, saving faith, comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's why you're wearing that armor. So with this sword, we stand firm against the devil's schemes. And with this sword, we draft new soldiers into the ranks of Yahweh, the one true God. We don't have to think about that, but that sword is not only a weapon to fight Satan, but it's a weapon to magically, instantaneously turn people into soldiers on your side. That's the word of the spirit. And at the same time, not to be limited to just justification and conversion, all of those pieces of armor are how we live. It's the sanctification. We live by the truth. We carry out deeds of righteousness. We strive for peace with all men. We walk by faith and not by sight. We do not neglect so great a salvation. And we don't shrink back from declaring the entirety of the word of God. So all of what we can see here in just these handful of verses, what I wanted to show us is that we're not gonna be done with this. So often we think that like, oh, we've studied that or we've done that. And you think that you're done. We're not done. I never get to the end of a sermon or end of a study or whatever and go think, oh, that's good. That in the box now, now I know what it means. It's done. We're never done. We're always digging further and further. So what, this is just the first run through Ephesians. And if the Lord tarries and all of y'all tarry and I tarry too, maybe we'll come back around to it. Some of y'all will hopefully be in heaven by then. I'm sure you are wishing that right now. But you go to verse 16 now, and let's get into the elements of the armor. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, the shield of faith. Before we talk about shields, let's talk about faith. Faith being an often misunderstood thing, we have to ask what it is. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us what it is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. And we stand on the Reformation principle of sola fide, which is just Latin for faith alone. We stand on that. Romans 3, 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Anywhere else you go off of that, you have ventured off of the true gospel. So faith is not something trivial. Faith is not something that you can just be wrapped up into a sentimental movie. 
Faith, if you move one step off of faith apart from anything else, then we're not talking about the biblical gospel. And we don't have faith in faith. See, sometimes we just say, oh, you just gotta have faith. Well, faith in faith is nothing. Belief in believing is nothing. We don't just naively believe or trust in something that's unspecified. Faith is not a virtue in and of itself. You can have faith in the wrong thing and that's foolishness, not virtue. Faith is only as good as its object. Let me just illustrate with that. My brother is a spinal doctor. I don't know exactly what he does, but I know it's with people's spines. He went to a lot of school for it. Now, I talk for a living and have been talking since I was about 15 months old. So I could go in there and probably talk and charm you who needs spinal work in a bigger way. Now, would you be a fool to put your faith in me to work on your spine? Absolutely. Like the Chronicles say, you will soon sleep with your fathers if you let me work on your spine instead of him because you put your faith in the wrong person. So faith in and of itself, we can see just from that silly illustration, isn't a virtue. Faith in the right object is the only thing that matters. Faith by itself does nothing. Our faith is in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his once for all atonement at Golgotha. It's not blind faith. Faith is not just Christian sentiment. Faith is taking God at his word. He said this, I believe it to be true. Now we look at the gift of faith. If this is the shield that we're supposed to take up, we understand that it's first a gift. Not just in the illustration, meaning that the Roman government would give you this shield. No, it's that, but it's also the gift of faith that we have to believe it all. We read earlier Philippians 1.29, but let's make sure that we don't miss it. It has been granted for you to believe. Ephesians 2.8, a verse that we all are familiar with. And we talked about months ago, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith is not of yourselves. That faith is the gift of God. You didn't have it, he gave it to you. Now, we have to be perpetually reminded of this in our context of just kind of pragmatic revivalism. No one can be saved unless God grants them saving faith. See, anybody, anywhere, anytime can profess faith. It's an extremely different thing to actually possess saving faith. Think about it like this. Evangelicalism often treats faith like a grandmother with grandkids at the candy store. All the grandkids, no matter how many they are, they all get $2. And somehow it's a $2 bill because only grandmothers know how to get $2 bills. And everybody got one. So one kid immediately loses it. You're already thinking of who that is in your family. The second kid is fancy and goes and buys, wastes the $2 on one little Ferrero Rocher thing. You got nothing for your buck. But then the wise one goes and gets the off-brand gummy bears, but gets a whole pound of them for two bucks. And that's how we view saving faith. So everybody had it at the jump. Somebody squandered it. Somebody put it in something silly. And then somebody wisely put it where it should have gone, in Jesus. But that's not faith. Nobody's born of their mother with faith. But everyone reborn of the spirit is given faith. See, faith is genuinely calling out to Christ for salvation. It is akin to a baby's first cry. 
If Jesus is the one who uses the illustration of being born again in John chapter three and speaking to Nicodemus, and then John picks it up in his epistles, Peter picks it up in his epistles, then we should embrace that illustration of being born again because we understand what it is to be born the first time. When do babies cry out for mom? When do they express their desire, their love, their need of mom before or after being born? After they are born and then they cry out. The same is true for us as believers. We are reborn, we are regenerated, Titus 3, 5 would say, then we cry out for faith, cry out for Christ in faith. This faith is from God himself given to you. And if that is so, will it withstand the flaming arrows of Satan? If that's from him, if he made it, will it be strong enough? Let's continue to think about it. But this faith is also an active faith. Second Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Now that faith is made intentionally active. We walk by faith. Now this shield most likely that Paul is imagining is not the small buckler shield that was a circle and on your arm right there and very more mobile. This is the big one. This is four feet tall, two and a half feet wide, has a bit of a concave element to it. It's wood that's bracketed with metal across the top, metal across the bottom. It's wrapped in some kind of leather. And before you would go out to war, you would soak all the shields in water because what would be a tactic of the enemy would always be is to dip arrows into pitch, tar, light them on fire and shoot them. And if that arrow hits, it's got to go through that leather and then it's soaked wood, water-soaked wood, and it puts that, the flaming arrow out. See, a shield is an additional layer of armor. If you think about it, the soldier is carrying that, but he's already wearing a bunch of armor. Why have it be that way? Well, it fortifies areas that are under attack. You can move it and have it be protecting what is under most attacked. You're lagging in confidence in the truth of God. If you're questioning the sufficiency of Christ's imputed righteousness to you, did it really work? Could it possibly have been so? Doubting the stability of the gospel of peace. Do I really have peace with God? Is he really okay with me? Does he really want me here? A lack of assurance of salvation. Did it really take? Was I really serious? Did I really mean it? Was I sincere enough? And then all of the variations, the panoplies of temptations to sin that come our way, that shield can be moved from wherever those arrows are coming from. So it doesn't matter if the evil one's flaming arrows are aimed at your waist, at your chest, at your feet, at your head. If they're coming from behind you or in front of you, that shield can move and you put it where the arrows are coming. <coughs> Faith that God can and will do what he promised that's what we walk by. We walk by that kind of faith. Every deviation at the inside of what's trying to call itself Christianity, every deviation is trying to walk by sight and not by faith. See, the Catholics, they need statutes and beads and the Eucharist that actually turns into Jesus' body somehow magically, crucifixes, exorcisms, miracles that are verified, bodies that didn't decay fast enough, relics. Every church has got a piece of the wood of Jesus' cross or leather from Thomas's sandal or something along. Why? Because I'd rather see it than just believe. I'd rather walk by sight instead of by faith. 
The same is for charismatic nonsense. Miracles and glory clouds of gold glitter in the sky or, or feathers just coming down, angel feathers are here or, or we gotta have a glory tunnel where the wind of the spirit's gonna blow through or we gotta go lay on a grave. I'm not making this up. Go lay on a grave of a faithful Christian and suck their spirit out. People do that. Don't Google it. It will just horrify you. Why? Because I'd rather walk by sight and not by faith. It's harder to carry that shield. Pragmatic stuff inside the church. What what is the sight that they want? Numbers. Give me numbers of conversion, of buildings, budgets, money coming in, all down the line, the attendances, the baptisms, and none of this is faith. To quote John MacArthur, it is doubt looking for proof. We walk by faith and not by sight. Faith is a necessity. Hebrews 11, 6, and without faith, hear this, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, meaning that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And then Romans 14, 23, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Faith is necessary. Faith, like all the other pieces of armor, the shield of faith is not optional. Roman soldier doesn't say, ah, I didn't want to take the shield today. No, you have to take it. It is part of the deal. We cannot please God without it and we cannot avoid sin without it. And this is where we get into the, but yes, but my faith is so weak. My faith is so crippled and I, I stumble in my faith. Well, what we're not talking about here is perfect faith. All we're talking about here is real faith. And there's a difference and we need to make sure that we know the difference. We, we think about Peter walking on the water and there was an obnoxious song written years ago about walking on the water, but what we don't do is we don't see the realness at the end. What does he cry out and say as he's sinking? Lord, save me. And then what does Jesus do when he pulls him out? Matthew 14, 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, you of how much faith? Little, but it was there. It was real. It was little, but it was real. His prayer for salvation, his prayer for Christ to meet his immediate need was little faith, but it was real faith. Sometimes what we do is we, we exalt people in our minds that we think are, are super Christians and then we, we plummet ourselves down so low as if we have nothing to offer or we're so pathetic. But you look at Peter and Jesus said, you had little faith, but I still responded to it. It was little. It should have been bigger. It could have been bigger, but it was real. We're looking for real faith, not perfect faith. And we have to learn to pray like the disciples prayed in Luke 17, 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. That should be on your prayer list every day. Increase my faith. And they say it all together. Increase my, this is the, there's a corporate element that we're gonna, talk about a little bit later, but this is the necessity of the church as the people of faith, the garrison of truth. This is what one commentator illustrated it like when you have all of those Roman soldiers with those huge four foot tall, two and a half foot wide shields, and they're all in a line, and then there's lines behind them, and they're marching forward to an enemy that looks unbeatable. It's just a line of walls marching forward. And when you have people on your sides, you're protected, So increase our faith. Let us put all of our shields out front and all walk together. 
So we have the shield of faith, but we're not left without a helmet. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Now the helmet of salvation, we need to think about first what a helmet is. This helmet was likely just like a bronze bowl with some kind of uh, flaps that came down over the ears and something that came down over the nose, likely. Some kind of sponge or softer lining on the inside. And it would go on your head, of course. Now, a solid helmet, it gives you confidence to stick your head up over the bunker to look at the enemy because you know your head is protected. Confidence in that helmet has got to become first. That's the thing that goes on your head. That's the thing that if it's uncomfortable, if it doesn't fit right, then you can't function. But if you have it on there, it's snugly fit, then you, then you know it, then you, then you have it. One of the things... That, that I would always notice in the youngest guys, youngest boys coming to play tackle football for the first time was just the unfamiliarity of a helmet. It's heavy, it's different. And then, you, and then they don't say it, but none of them actually believe that this is going to protect my head. Now, none of them wear helmets when they ride bikes or do other things like that because that's nerdy. And as soon as mom's not looking, you throw it into the bushes. But when this comes to the, and you're seeing collisions and the whole point of the activity today is to smash into somebody else, they're just, I just don't know if that helmet's gonna protect my head. And so they're always keeping that head back. And you're trying to teach them, you know, when you're tackling somebody who's coming at an angle, you put your head in front of them across the ball. But like, I'd rather just stick my arm and go around because I don't believe that this helmet is really gonna protect my head. It's gonna hurt. But this is why having assurance of salvation is so vital. That helmet will hold. Listen to what our confession says in this chapter 18 about assurance of grace and salvation. It says, this unfallible, infallible assurance is not such an essential part of faith that it is always fully experienced alongside faith. So our confession says, what the scripture says is that it's not essential for you to be saved, for you to have assurance of that salvation, that sometimes you won't have that assurance in the way that you should. But true believers may wait a long time and struggle with many difficulties before obtaining it, it being that assurance. Yet with the enabling of the Spirit to know the things freely given to them by God, they may attain this assurance using ordinary means appropriately without any extraordinary revelation. Sometimes when you're doubting your salvation, you're like, God, just write it in the sky or make ants line up on the dirt in a way that says, I love you or something. Just give me that. No, no, the ordinary means, church, prayer, reading the scriptures, communing with the saints, the ordinary means is how you can obtain it. Therefore, it is the duty of all of us to be as diligent as possible to make their calling and election sure. In this way, their hearts may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit in love and thankfulness to God and in strength and cheerfulness and the duties of obedience. It goes on to say, true believers may in various ways have the assurance of their salvation shaken, decreased, or temporarily lost. Yet, they are never completely lacking the seed of God the life of faith, the love of Christ and the brethren, sincerity of heart or conscience concerning their duty. Out of these graces, through the work of the Spirit, this assurance may at the proper time be revived. So if that is the case, then we need to do what 2 Peter 1.10 says, which says, therefore, brethren, 
be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. You need to go through the process of believing that that helmet will repel every sword, every arrow, every spear, every blunt force trauma instrument. It will propel all of those things. And you are wearing it. You're having the conversation with God like the way that a junior high football player has with his coach. Coach, is this a real helmet? Is this the real kind? Yes, it is. Okay, but, but do I have it buckled correctly? Let me look at it. Yes, it is. It's snapped on there. It's really on your head. Will it, will it come off of my head, coach? No, it's not, gonna, it's not gonna come off. Is it the same team colors that everybody else has so that everybody will know that they shouldn't come against me and that I'll be quickly identified? Yes, you're wearing the right color helmet. It's the right color stickers, all that stuff. Will this helmet protect me? Yes. Yes, it will. Now what? Now you get into the game and you put it to use. Test the Lord's goodness and see him assure you. The Lord's goodness to you and salvation through Christ, take that helmet and go knowing that nothing can penetrate it. That's your salvation. Nothing can can mar it, can ding it, can pierce it, can crack it, nothing. Watch him prove himself faithful to you over and over and over again. You know, in high school football, when you're playing that in low-budget schools, the fastest way to know who the toughest guy on the other team is there's one way to know that. Who has the most scarred-up helmet? Everybody knows you look for that. You're looking for the guy who the, hel- the crown of the helmet, which is right here, if he's got cuts going this way all over it, you know, watch out for him. If he's got part of that sticker, that cheap sticker on the side is torn off, You know to watch out for it, but here's the biggest one. If his face mask has all the paint scratched off and you can see bare metal, then you know run away from him for the whole 40 minutes of this game. This is the baddest guy they have. Why? Because he believes in that helmet and he uses it. He has no fear that his head is ever gonna get hurt at all. So we as Christians go forward knowing this helmet cannot crack. This is what Hebrews 2 calls so great a salvation. It can't be undone. It can't be compromised in any possible way. So through the witness of the word and through the witness of the Holy Spirit within us, we have the opportunity to live like that guy with the totally scraped up helmet. He's fine. His helmet has held and yours will hold all the way through to the end. And what we have to be, what we have to acknowledge with the helmet of salvation, of Holy Spirit choosing to use that illustration that the salvation that we have is as a helmet is you're constantly being reminded of your salvation. Nobody who's wearing a helmet forgets that they're wearing a helmet. Nobody gets off their motorcycle with that full face helmet and then just goes to sleep and goes, ah, man, I forgot to take my helmet off. You can't help but know I'm wearing a helmet. I know it all the time. It reminds you that you're at war and it reminds you what side you're on because yours looks different than theirs. It reminds you also that you are protected. That when you see that collision coming, you know, my head's gonna be okay. And that's my life. 
And you think about it too, that it's this bronze and whatever they were making in the Roman empire in the first century, it wasn't carbon fiber. It wasn't titanium alloy. It's just heavy, chunky bronze. So there's a weight to it. And when that weight is on your head, it gives you confidence that it can't be pierced or broken. And it lets you know you're enlisted in the Roman army. You know who manufactured that helmet. You know who placed it on your head. And you know that this helmet has been worn by countless other soldiers to win countless other victories. And if that's true for just the Roman Empire, which will fall in the timeline after Paul's life, then how much more is it true of Christ? We know who made this helmet. We know who gave us this helmet. And we know from Isaiah, passage we read last week, he's already worn this helmet to victory. He's already finished the fight for all of us with this helmet that he's given me to wear. So saints, do you ever sit and think and just meditate on your salvation? You must, you must meditate on your salvation. Think about it. It will greatly encourage you. It'll enable you to stand firm today. And it will also give you peace when your last day is minutes away. I don't know if you ever think about that, and you should. It's not morbid to do so, because Ecclesiastes say it's better to be in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. It's better to attend a funeral than a birthday party. That what will I be like in those final moments? If I have confidence that I have the helmet of salvation, and I've studied it, I've looked at it, I've thumped it, I've, I've put it inside out, I've put it to the test, then I can rest in those final moments, knowing this is gonna carry me all the way through. This will protect me all the way to the end. You will have what Romans 8 is, 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's your helmet, that's that confidence that it gives. And we also know that it's life-changing because you can't wear a helmet and not know that you hear differently. First time even a kid puts on a baseball batting helmet, they can't hear you. When the wind blows over that hole over your ear, you can't hear right. You see different, it pops down different. It, it changes the way you function. It's one, way to, one thing to play flag football with nothing but flags. But when you put all that gear on, and particularly the helmet, you can't see like you used to see. You got to adjust to different ways. Your body thinks in different ways. And so salvation does change how you behave. It changes how you live and how you function. And that helmet doesn't come off because if you take the helmet off, you die. In Ephesians 5.8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk as somebody who has a helmet. Salvation through Christ doesn't free you up to do what you want. It frees you to live as you ought because you couldn't do that before, but now you can. And then the last piece of armor is not actually a piece of armor. It's a weapon. It's the only weapon. Verse 17, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the only weapon. And we should pay attention to that because a Roman soldier would have more than just a sword. The sword would be the most important. But do you think they have a spear? You can have a dagger. You can have other hand-to-hand -hand combat tools on your belt. Be carrying a mace, other things along those lines. But not the Christian. You have one. It's the sword of the spirit, 
which is the word of God. It does protect, but it also attacks. In Pilgrim's Progress, there's a character in the second book at the very end. His name is Valiant for Truth. Valiant for Truth. And he's describing this fight. When he comes up upon the group, Pilgrim's Progress book two is about a group, not just one person, but a group. And he comes up on the group and the, the pastor figure is named Greatheart. He intercepts Valiant for Truth and they're talking about it. And Valiant for Truth is telling him about this fight that he just had with these three guys named Wildhead, Inconsiderate, and Pragmatic. And he's telling them about it, uh, about the fight and what it was like. And Greatheart said to Mr. Valiant for Truth, thou hast worthily behaved thyself. Let me see thy sword. So he showed it to him. And when he had taken it in his hand, he looked thereon a while and said, ha, it is a right Jerusalem blade. He takes Valiant for Truth's sword after he's been talking about this fight that he just had, and he calls it a Jerusalem blade. That's the Bible. Valiant for Truth has been fighting with the Bible. And so then he speaks for himself and he says, it is so. Let a man have one of these blades with a hand to wield it and skill to use it, and he may venture upon an angel with it. He need not fear its holding. If he can but tell how to lay on, its edge will never blunt. It will cut flesh and bones and soul and spirit and all. And then Greatheart says, but you fought a great while. I wonder, were you not weary? And Valiant says, I fought till my sword did cleave to my hand. And then they were joined together as if a sword grew out of my arm. And when the blood ran through my fingers, then I fought with most courage. And then Greatheart says, thou hast done well. Thou hast resisted unto blood striving against sin. Thou shalt abide with us, come in and go with us, for we are thy companions. Now, Valiant for Truth made a biblical analogy or, or is using a biblical analogy that already existed in the scriptures about Eliezer, one of David's mighty men. In 2 Samuel 23, 9 and 10, after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ohahite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle and the men of Israel had withdrawn. He arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. This Eliezer, this one of David's top elite Delta Force SEAL Team 6 guys, he fights so long and so hard that his hand is like permanently fused in some sense to the sword. And then Valiant for Truth describes it. It's like there was a sword growing out of my own hand. That is the Christian's relationship to the Bible, that it grows out of you. The writer of Pilgrim's Progress is a man named John Bunyan. And Charles Spurgeon used to say to him, he said, look, the man is a walking Bible. Prick him anywhere and he bleeds bibline, meaning you poke him on any poor portion of his flesh and the blood that comes out is just Bible. All he's filled with is Bible so that all that comes out is Bible. And when you go through and you read Pilgrim's Progress, one of the reasons why it matters so much is because that's all it is. It's just Bible. It's all Bible. And what we are to be is swordsmen with the Bible. And that's easy to say. That's the most churchy thing to say is read your Bible. I've heard raging liberals say, read your Bible more. But we have to be serious about this. And we, in a particular way, 
because what we'll do in a, in, a, in a church like ours, people who have affinities like ours, we love theology, we love the scriptures, we love apologetics, we love all of this stuff. We have all of these resources, we have all of these databases and YouTube channels and blogs and all this stuff is that what you'll do is you'll circumvent actually studying and knowing the Bible for yourself and you'll just let somebody else give it to you straight and then you parrot what they said. And here's the problem with that. that and that's a good thing in some sense. We all need teachers and we're thankful for all of them. Praise God for the faithfulness of it. Praise God we live in the era that we do, that you can get the, you can get the equivalent to, to a, almost a PhD in theology for free from the internet. You really can. But what that does then is it short circuits you having to get into the scriptures and wrestle with it for yourself. And here's the thing eventually it will come out in combat that you don't know how to use a sword. Because when you don't have access to your phone and when you don't have the recall to pull up what so-and-so said about that topic or that great tweet that so-and-so had, you don't have it, then you are left weaponless. If you can't handle this for yourself, then you are weaponless ultimately. Praise God for the resources that we have that are out there. They are fantastic. Systematic theology books are, are, that, were, that would cost hundreds of dollars in yesteryear's currency. They're just free PDFs now. You can just get it now. Praise God for that. We should be taking stock and using all of these resources but it is unmistakable. Let me tell you, when I talk to guys who wanna go into the ministry or they're going out to seminary and they wanna to talk to me, you can tell the guys whose theology has been shaped by blogs and videos. And then you can tell the guys who have just been steeped in the scriptures for years. It's the difference of, being, of going to architectural school to build one house and you already have all the lumber all piled up versus going to architectural school and getting a two by four at a time. What we need to be is people who are constantly just piling up two by fours because we are building, being used by Christ to build the very house of God. So with the sword of the spirit, we know that it is a two-edged sword. That's what it said in that Pilgrim's Progress quote. It's quoting Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I think sometimes what we do is we've made such trite triviality of the sword of the spirit that we've made the sword into cardboard. Then when people talk about it, they're like, yeah, it kind of completes the outfit. Right? It's like a Halloween costume when you're a kid and you're a cowboy and you have the toy six shooters with the orange end caps on it. This kind of completes the outfit. No, no, this is a metal sword. And what does it do in verse 12 of Hebrews 4? It cuts and it judges. That's what it says it does. Using the same description that Paul uses here that the Bible is a sword, it cuts, but it cuts precisely. Is it piercing between as far as the division of joint and marrow, soul and spirit? It cuts precisely. To blunt the edge of the sword intentionally is to turn it into a spatula. And to blunt the edges of the word of God is to turn this into a storybook with some good self-help tips. 
so we don't blunt the edges of it. It is the very word of the living God. We should expect it to cut. We should expect it to cut us. We should be praying that it would cut us. We should be praying that when I get in the scriptures, Lord, let this show me. Let it be what it says in verse 12, Hebrews 4. Judge my thoughts. Judge my intentions. Because any of my thoughts that are contrary to you and your character, I want them cut out. I want them gone. So Bible, show me that. I want that. No matter how bad surgery hurts, no matter how much cancer you have, but I'd rather have a bunch of stitches everywhere and a bunch of swelling and redness than all of the cancer inside of me. So get in there and cut it out, Bible. We should also expect it to cut others. Not in the sense that we're thankful and that we're wielding it like some kind of unthinking maniacs, but when the word of God cuts others, we should expect that and we should know that and we should sympathize because we know what that feels like and when the reactions are all over the place, we need to know that's what happened. That's what happened is the word of God was a sword to that person because that's what it is. We shouldn't expect a a sword to do anything but cut. That shouldn't surprise us, but that means that we need to wield it carefully. In the everybody's a servant and everybody can do everything and everybody's on the same playing level kind of ethos that has arrived in evangelicalism over the past several decades, we've completely tossed James 3.1. James 3.1 says, let not many of you become teachers. Insert, let not many of you become sword handlers publicly. Why? Because we know that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. We've been putting everybody everywhere in teaching positions and the internet has made everybody a teacher. Everybody's a prophet. Everybody has something to say and nobody realizes that James 3.1 is still true. You are just putting yourself under stricter judgment. You're gonna be evaluated far more severely as a swordsman, public swordsman, than anybody else will be. So that's why it's true of shepherds, elders, pastors, overseers, those words are all interchangeable in the New Testament, that they must be skilled swordsmen. They have to be. That's the only skill they have to have. It's a list of of a dozen and a half or so character traits and then one skill, able to teach. They must be able to use the sword of the spirits. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, be diligent to present yourselves to proved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. You know, that's that's those two words, accurately handling is one word in the Greek and it means to cut straight, to cut straight. So then how are they, meaning these teachers of the word, these elders, pastors, shepherds, how are they to avoid shame before God and then gain his approval? by accurately handling the sword. That's how. We are at war, right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Heaven and hell are at stake. The shepherds must be skilled swordsmen. But every believer also is to be a swordsman of swords. We can use Old Testament illustrations to help picture this. In Nehemiah, 
He's leading the last wave of Jewish exiles out of Babylon back to the land of Israel. And when he gets there, there's three bad guys waiting for him, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And they're rabble-rousing the rabble-rousers around the area to intimidate the Israelites, the Jews, trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And it gets so bad that Nehemiah commands his people to take these measures. Nehemiah 4, verse 17 and 18, those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. Verse 18, as for the builders, each wore his sword girded as his side as he built while the trumpeter stood near me. See, the word of God is for the entirety of the people of God. And while your main role may be that of a builder, one carrying a burden, like Nehemiah's men, Nehemiah's women are involved in this process as well, rebuilding the wall, you have your sword with you. You have a measure of skill in using it and understanding how it works. And since the Reformation, since William Tyndale and many other men died to get the Bible translated into a, leg, a, a language you could understand. I don't know if we realize how much blood stains are on this for us. So many men had to die just so you could read the Bible because it was illegal to translate it out of Latin. But they did it anyway so that we could have it. So we've had it in the church, a church that's New Testament church is 2,000 years old. We've had the Bible for a fourth of that. We've had the Bible in our private possessions for a fourth of that. We are the privileged class from the 1517s on. We are those who have this written down. Therefore, we have a great responsibility to use it well because we know that we fight a war that has enemies internally and externally. We know that we're gonna be assaulted on end, ad nauseum from outside of us with all kinds of evil, all kinds of variations and twistings of the truth of God. And we need to know how to handle our sword to just cut it to ribbons before it makes it into our heads, our hearts, or our homes. And secondly, we also know that there's evil in here. And it doesn't matter where I go, we can't be like the liberal celebrities that every time they say that if that guy gets elected president, I'm gonna move to Canada, I'm gonna move to Australia, and they never do. But we say that, we're like, it gets so bad, I'm gonna move to, where are you gonna move to? You go to the middle of the Amazon rainforest that nobody's ever seen before, which is highly unlikely because Google Earth has seen everything. You're still gonna be there. And you still have this, something that is wicked and deceitful above all things. So you're still gonna need to know how to use a sword, even if you're totally alone because you have sin indwelling in you as a believer. We know that from Romans chapter seven. So what do we have as an example? We have Jesus. What did Jesus do? We won't read it, but Matthew four, Satan comes to him and he tempts him three times. And he quotes from a book of the Bible that you would think, I don't know if it has the richest stuff for me, but three times he quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3, 6, 16, and 6, 13. Jesus in fighting off Satan, the one who has the arrows that are flaming and aimed at us, he uses the same sword that you have. He uses the same tools that he gave to you, the very word of God. So then you can know, one, it works. And two, it's the truth. So here, as we close, I wanna read you one quote from Charles Hodge, a commentator from... 
old Princeton in the 1800s. He said, it is also the experience of the church collective, meaning this warfare and this swordsmanship. All her triumphs, meaning the church, over sin and error have been affected by the word of God. So as long as she uses this, meaning the word, and relies on it alone, she goes on conquering. But when anything else, be it reason, science, tradition, or the commandments of men, if any of those things is allowed to take the Bible's place or to share its office, then the church or even the individual Christian is at the mercy of the adversary. If to, to not use the scripture in anything else that we're dealing with, internally or externally, that's to lay down your sword and decide I'm gonna fight Satan with bare hands. If you ever don't use this, then that's what you're doing. So we do this together. First John 5, 4 says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This is our victory and our faith. See, we do this all as a church. It's not an accident that what God chose to use through Paul's pen is a soldier. What is a soldier by himself? He's nothing and he's worthless. He can't do anything. A soldier knows who he is and has confidence in what he's wearing as armor because everybody else does. Because I'm full of all of this. I, I'm not in this battle alone. None of these are solo missions. We, we prize a lot of times in the West, the solo actor, the, the, the lone wolf. And there, there's stories that are similar to that. We need to be prepared to stand alone. That's for sure. If nobody else does, then we will. But the, the majority of the reality of our experience is corporate. We do this all together. Like mentioned earlier, the shields all lined up. It's just a bunch of shields and a wall, a bunch of helmets across the top, everybody wearing the same breastplate, the same leather strap of a, of a belt, the same cleat-type shoes, and the same swords. Nobody has anything different. Nobody has anything less. We are all together as the church. And if we are at war and we've been given armor to stand firm with, then we need the church. We need each other. We stand together. And we do all of this because God, every illustration that he uses in the book of Ephesians for conversion, for salvation, we're all together. We're a body, we're a building, we're an army. There, it's not an individual reality. It's not an archipelago of just a bunch of islands dotting in the South Pacific. You are one connected giant landmass. That's what he births you into, and that's what we stand in, linked arm in arm with brothers and sisters, saved by the same gospel with eyes on the same Christ. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for the church. I thank you for the brothers and sisters that are in here or wanted to be here but couldn't be. And I thank you for the brothers and sisters in other faithful churches in our area. Lord, far be it from us to think that we are the only ones with the gospel. We are the only ones who know the one true God. May it never be so that we think that. Thank you for the faithful brothers and sisters in those other churches and for the ones all over the globe 
or to read of those in Nepal who are dying and desperate for any faithful teacher of the word to come. Or please send them skilled swordsmen. Or to read of the brothers and sisters in Southeast Asia like Vietnam and Laos and Myanmar. And then across the 1040 window with, with India, with China, with Tibet, Iran, and Iraq, Syria, Saudi, Yemen, Oman, United Arab Emirates, on down the list, Lord, send qualified men to stand in the gap, raise up families, men and women and boys and girls and churches, strengthen them, or give them great confidence in the armor that you've put on them. Lord, it seems as if they have experienced more assault on their armor than we have on ours. And in some ways that's true. Lord, give them great confidence in the shield of faith that does indeed extinguish all the arrows of the evil one. And Lord, let us not think that our armor is to rust, that our armor is to sit around and to do nothing. Lord, give us a great uh, desire for, for action, for usefulness, and whatever it may be, with a healthy uh, reverence for what it is to teach your word or proclaim your word or, or share the gospel or, or, or all that you've called us to do in the Great Commission, a healthy reverence for the, for the sobriety of that, but not some kind of trembling, servile terror. We must engage and you've equipped us to do so. Help us to do so faithfully. Help us to encourage one another in it. Help us to never gain or allow to take root an individualistic spirit in our church. Kill that dead on sight. Let us always know, be remembered, and be refreshed in the fact that we have each other and that we need each other. Of course, we have your spirit dwelling within each of us, but we need each other. We thank you so much for the gift of the church and that we are shoulder to shoulder in this war together. And that the same Jesus that radically saved us is the same Jesus that radically saved each individual in our church and in all the churches across the globe and throughout history and yet to come. Lord, you have blessed us beyond measure. You are the giver of all good things that comes down from the Father of lights. We thank you so much and thank you for the word. Thank you that you didn't leave us here stumbling around in the dark, wondering what it is to be a Christian or what a Christian is or who God is, if he's triune or not, or you've explained all of it. You've given us your word. May we be skilled, dedicated, disciplined, and committed swordsmen. May we know what it is that we handle. May we long for it to handle us. We ask this all humbly in Christ's name, amen.